If you're still in Matthew 7, you can keep your Bibles there and just go back to Matthew chapter 5. Open up uh, to Matthew 5 this morning for our time in the Word. Last week, we went through the, the last passage in this opening chapter of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, verses 43 through 48, chapter 5. Take us to the height of Christ's teaching where he calls on us not to hate, but love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. Jesus has been raising the bar of the righteousness that characterizes his kingdom, and this is the pinnacle. But just when you thought the standard couldn't get any higher, Jesus had to go ahead and, and say something like this. Verse 48, the last verse, he says, Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This closing command is quite stunning, and for some, quite confusing. What, what does Jesus mean by this command? Is Is he serious? Is he actually telling us to be as perfect as God? We touched on this verse briefly last time, but I wanted to save it, come back for it, take it again, deal with it again, because it really holds the key to seeing the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount and gets us to the heart of Christian living as well. Really, you could say that throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been showing us how to be perfect. Is that something you want to know? Is that something you want to be? Also, the Sermon on the Mount, it's the longest and most complete discourse coming from the mouth of the Lord himself. Don't you want to know what, what he's really saying, what he's really getting at in this message? We've finished going through Matthew 5, verse by verse. We're ready to move on into the next chapter, but I figure this morning we have an opportunity just to come back and reflect on the bigger picture of what we've learned so far And then dwell on the meaning of this pivotal verse, Matthew 5, verse 48. So that's what we're going to do. I can already tell you it won't be your your typical sermon. There's a three-part outline. This will be more of, you might say, a meandering meditation on the possibility and impossibility of being perfect. But if by the end we can answer a couple of questions, we'll have come a long way. And what is the meaning of Matthew 5, 48? And what does it tell us about the message of the Sermon on the Mount? It sounds simple, but if you can nail down those questions, you're really going to get to the core of Christian living. And so there's still a lot to do here. Now, to get started, I want to frame this whole discussion a little different by introducing you to cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. I'm not sure if you've heard of that before. Cultural Christianity is a phenomenon that occurs whenever Christianity becomes the dominant faith in a society. And think about when Christians are a minority oppressed group in a nation. That has a purifying effect on the church because there's an added social cost to following Jesus and it tends to weed out the false believers. So in places of persecution like China today, and you want to sign up to be a Christian, it might cost you your job your property, maybe even your life. So who wants to join that religion? Well, generally only those moved by the Holy Spirit. But things change when Christians go from being a minority group to a majority group. When the church goes from being oppressed to privileged, what happens when the church rises to power in a nation? That's not a bad thing by itself. No one desires persecution and a state of peace can lead to great advancements in the church, in theology, in missions, in culture. But there is a danger when a culture becomes Christianized. The high social cost of following Jesus is gone. 
Become a Christian, you're not going to lose your job. You're not going to lose your life. To the contrary, now that Christians are in power, there are many social advantages to aligning with the church. I mean, if you want your small business to flourish in a little town, you better have Christian values. If you want to run for office, you better attend some church. Social incentives start forming for being a Christian. Again, this is not a bad thing by itself, but the danger comes when at the same time the church lets its popularity get to its head and stops preaching the full gospel. The cost of following Jesus is always high, no matter the culture or the situation. He demands that you deny yourself, pick up your cross to follow him. You have to die to yourself to follow Jesus. But that is often not preached. The message of the cross gets dropped and a Christian culture starts to replace biblical truth. This is when cultural Christianity overtakes biblical Christianity. You know, this has happened when in a land, a country, a majority of Christians have no testimony. You have a majority of people, they claim to be Christians, but they have no testimony. They don't really know the gospel. They've not repented of their sins and clung to Christ as their only hope. They're Christians because they were raised that way. All their family and friends are Christians. Everyone in their community are Christians. It's just how it is. Meanwhile, the Christian faith starts getting used to promote something other than the salvation Christ brings. The church becomes a, a, power, uh, a power broker, a voting block, and often leverages its power for gain. This is when you get politicians and candidates start showing up at churches to get a, a photo op holding the Bible. This is when the mission of the church goes from the Great Commission to the American Dream. And no doubt this phenomenon of cultural Christianity has taken place in America, a land where just a few decades ago, 80 to 90% of people claim to be Christians. And those are crazy numbers. We've always known there's no way 80 to 90% of Americans are born again. But now the numbers of those who still identify as Christians is plunging. We're not saying people are losing their salvation. It's just that many are giving up the charade of cultural Christianity which itself is not a bad thing. The rest of the culture, though, is starting to turn against Christianity, and some are giving into that pressure. Not surprisingly, one of the main reasons the culture is rejecting Christianity is hypocrisy. They see Christians who tout God's morals, but then fail to live by them. I'll tell you what, though, hypocrisy like this is always a huge byproduct of cultural Christianity. Not just America, every country is found. Every time in history, it's found. You see, when a, when a Christian culture takes over a society and the true gospel is not being preached, you're going to have hordes of people who identify as Christians, but for all the wrong reasons. It's not because they desperately need his forgiveness. They've not taken his name because they believe he's their only savior, their only hope for new life. Now, they're Christians for some other reason. It's socially advantageous. They were raised that way. They never questioned it. Either way, you have people who aren't regenerate, but they're playing the role of a believer. That's going to be a problem, especially because there's this pesky thing called the Bible, and it demands that believers live according to the supreme standard of righteousness. But for all those people who Claim to be Christians, they're not born again. When they read the Bible, they see this standard. Not having new hearts, 
they don't want to live like this. And not having the Holy Spirit, they can't live like this. They don't love righteousness. They still love their sin. But they still need a veneer of morality if they're going to pass as Christians. So, so what do they do? How do they still appear to be Christians without subscribing to everything the Bible says? Well, the answer is to lower the standard. They need a doable brand of Christianity that comes with all the social benefits, but it's like easier to keep. There is a conservative version of this where the standard of righteous living, it really gets limited down to taboo social sins. Right? Christian living becomes about not drinking, not smoking, not dancing, not listening to worldly music. Women can't wear pants. Men can't have long hair. Right? They set their focus on their own little list of do's and don'ts. But the heart of sin in God's word is largely ignored. And though these quote-unquote Christians can be just as greedy, just as lustful, just as untrustworthy, just as unloving as those in the world. And oftentimes behind closed doors that they violate their own legalistic rules anyway. They're total hypocrites and it's no wonder that the culture is rejecting that brand of cultural Christianity. Now, of late, though, a liberal version of cultural Christianity has emerged. This is where the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. All social sins, now all sexual sins are accepted. But they, they still claim to a form of Christianity, one that's been reduced to a single word, love. Just love is what it's all about. Loving your neighbor is what it's all about. But being cut off from the holiness of God, this neutered form of cultural Christianity has no impact, no power to really change the world. Both groups of cultural Christians have rejected the whole counsel of God and rejected the full standard of righteousness it contains. They cling to Christ in name only, but theirs is a dead faith. And sadly, these are the types of people whom the Lord himself says he will reject from the kingdom. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty one, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And Christ says, not a few, not a few, many will be rejected. People who called him Lord, paying lip service to Jesus as Lord doesn't count for anything. Their faith was never living, made evident by the fact that their lives were never obedient. It can be extremely hard to reach such people because while still being desperately sick, they think they're healthy. But these people must be reached for the sake of their genuine salvation. And they must be reached for the sake of the purity of the church because nothing gives the true church a black eye more than phony Christians. So then how? How can you reach such people? How can their eyes be open to the gospel and their need for Christ? The answer is by graciously confronting them with the full standard of righteousness found in God's word, but with the full demands of his law. You have to show them in scripture what God really expects of them with no lowering of that standard. For example, it's not enough that they don't murder. Like Christ taught us, that they must not even be angry with their brother in their heart. It's not enough that they don't commit adultery. That doesn't make you a good person. They must not even give in to lust for another in their heart. God expects them to be perfect in thought, attitude, Indeed, they need to be as perfect as God if they're to be accepted by him. 
But wait, you think, I hope you're thinking, no one can do that. No one's perfect. No one's sinless. What kind of message is that? Who can live up to the full standard of righteousness found in God's word? No one. Of course, that's the whole point. No one comes even close to meeting God's standard. But recognizing that is the first step toward receiving salvation, which comes not as an achievement, but as a gift. And this is step one. You can't justify yourself. Your rule keeping doesn't cut it. You really think the holy God of heaven will just let you in because you're not as bad as that really bad criminal over there? But when you, when you see God saying, you shall be holy just as I, the Lord your God, am holy. When you hear Christ saying, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's meant to lead you to only one response. And it is despair. Because you're not holy, you're not perfect, and you never will be on your own. But it's only when you see your sinfulness before this type of holy God, you humble yourself before him. That's when you find the door into the kingdom. The way is narrow, the door is small. You only find it on your knees, but it can be found. It's there. There was once a sinful tax collector, a wicked man who found that door one day when he went to the temple to pray. But being broken by his unworthiness, Luke 8, 13 says this of him. It says the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. To be righteous enough to enter God's kingdom is simply an impossible task. It's like being told to jump to the moon. Who cares if you can jump higher than other people around you? You're you're being told to jump to the moon. You can't do it. You can't even come close. But here and only here can the good news, the actual good news of the gospel, truly be apprehended. Namely that God has already sent his perfectly righteous son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that Jesus, by faith, he can make us righteous. He can make us right with God. Just like 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, that Christ, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Access into this kingdom, it, it can't be earned, but it can be granted. And it is done so one way, by grace through faith in this one and only Savior, Christ. This may be a message some of you need to hear. Maybe some of you need to be woken up before it's too late. Maybe some of you are just playing Christian charades. Youth especially need to hear this message. That's because they're raised, hopefully, in Christian homes. That's a good thing. They're raised in a Christian culture. That's not a bad thing, but that does not automatically make them Christians. They have to come to their own faith, as must all, driven by a recognition of their own unworthiness before this perfectly holy God. This is a message everyone needs to hear, and this is a message that comes to us from the Lord himself directly in the Sermon on the Mount. This message comes to a head here in Matthew 5.48. I've labored with this long introduction, but now you can see this connection 
Because a huge part of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is confronting not cultural Christianity per se, but cultural Judaism. But it's pretty much the same thing because in his day, the Jews had fallen into the same trap. And history always repeats itself. What we're experiencing in America is nothing new with cultural Christianity. But in Christ's day, a type of cultural Judaism had formed where the people honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They only clung to a husk of religion. And they were hypocrites. Let me show you now how similar cultural Judaism was to what we know as cultural Christianity today. God had given the people his law in his word. And this law was never meant to be a standard of acceptance before him. I mean, that's just impossible. No one's sinless. Everybody transgresses this law. We're, We're fallen. We're not perfect. No, but the law was intended as a guide for right living for these people who should have already been made right with God by faith. God had made them his people by grace. And that was the only thing that could enable them to live by his law. But it seems the vast majority of Jews miss this boat. Having been raised in a Jewish culture, they started thinking that they were essentially saved because they were descended from Abraham. Right? Salvation comes from the first birth, not the second birth. They believe that the gates of heaven would just automatically open up for them because they were Jews. Like instant access, right? But what about God's law? And what about this impossible standard of righteousness? It can't actually be kept. But just like the legalists and cultural Christians of our day, the Jews found a way to lower God's standard, to make it keepable, doable that they might justify themselves and and feel holy. This is the mind of natural man at work. To do this, they both reinterpreted God's law and then added hundreds of their own little rules and regulations on top of God's law. You might think that by adding all these rules, they were making the standard higher, but just the opposite. These rules functioned like loopholes and actually lowered the standard. It made it doable, keepable. Yeah, you still had to be committed to this culture, this Jewish culture, but if you were enthusiastic, you could do it. (coughs) However, their hearts were still far from God. Hypocrisy was the only result. For many months, we've been studying some of the ways the Jews did this, how they specifically lowered the standard of the law throughout Matthew 5. Jesus himself has been calling out the ways they warped the law and subtly crafted ways to lower the standard. But Jesus has none of this. He rejects that. He confronts them with the full, true, surpassing righteousness God demands. You have to realize Christ does all this. He says all this in mercy. He's he's trying to reach the people. This message is not for the scribes and the Pharisees. They get their own message in Matthew 23, and it's one of straight-up condemnation. But here, this is a wake-up call for those who had been trapped in cultural Judaism. And if if you think you can earn God's acceptance by just keeping some edited-down list of God's commandments, you've got another thing coming. Again, listen to the opening claim of this big section in Matthew 5.20, where he starts this off by saying to them, I say to you that unless your righteousness 
surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You got to understand to the people back then, that was shocking. It would be as shocking today as telling a group of Catholics that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pope, you can't get into heaven. You've got to be holier than the Pope to get into heaven. That would blow their minds. I mean, who can do that? If the Pope's not getting in, who is? But the scribes and Pharisees, they they were the most righteous guys around. If their level of righteousness is not enough, I mean, what hope is there for anyone else? No one even came close to keeping the law like them. But Christ has revealed, actually, they don't have any righteousness. All they have is a phony self-righteousness that accounts uh, for nothing before God. They managed a basic outward conformity to the law, but they completely ignored the heart. And Christ makes clear that God demands a far surpassing righteousness than that. And in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus has been showing us some examples of what that surpassing righteousness looks like. And since we have a little time for review, what have we learned? Right? In verses 21 through 30. If you think you're a good person because you don't commit murder or adultery, think again. Because Jesus equates anger in your heart to murder. And he equates lust in your heart to adultery. And that the bar is way up there. You think about the commandments. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Most people could hear those and say, check. Like, I keep those commandments. I must be a good person. What if God says, thou shalt not be angry with another? Thou shalt not lust after another. Yeah, are you still so righteous? How much anger and lust has filled your heart this past week, let alone your lifetime? Then in verses 31 through 37, Jesus goes on to show how surpassing righteousness extends even to fidelity. That God demands total faithfulness, both in your marriage vows and in all your other vows. All forms of lying, deceit, and betrayal are egregious sins to the Lord. And so, yeah, you may not commit formal perjury, but how many little white lies have you told this past week? How often do you break your word? Is your righteousness really still surpassing? And then finally, verses 38 through 47, Jesus talks about love and hate. And we're all so prone to revenge to retaliation. When someone offends us or hurts us, we want to get back at them and make them pay. Hate quickly springs up in our hearts. And we all know it. But all such retribution is forbidden by the Lord. He, to the contrary, commands us to love our enemies. And are you really on board with that? And even if you are, you actually do that all the time? Now, it's possible that so far up to verse 47, you might get the impression from Christ's teaching that he's just showing us how to beat the Pharisees at their own game. Like, yeah, they're on the right track with this law keeping. You just need to to do more. You need to keep more laws, higher laws. You need to be more extreme. But again, lest there be any confusion, Jesus adds one more verse as a capstone on this section before he moves on uh, to eliminate all doubt. And that's verse 48. Where he says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And with this, Jesus erases all doubt that you can do this yourself, that you can attain to the surpassing righteousness he's describing on your own. You can't. 
And he's trying to teach us something else here. Already, if you're with me, we're, we're starting to pull back the veil on the Sermon on the Mount, what he's really after in this message as he's confronting the, the compromised cultural Judaism of his day. His words just as much confront cultural Christianity of today. There's still more to say on that. But I think now we can ask, verse 48, what does it mean? What is he getting at in verse 48? How does it shed light on this uh, sermon? Now, right away, you'll notice the first word of verse 48 is therefore. This is a common conjunction expressing consequence. In light of what Jesus said, essentially summing up everything he just said, he issues this new injunction. Therefore, you are to be perfect. This comes as a future middle indicative. It just has the effect of setting up a goal or an intended outcome of his teaching on surpassing righteousness. Based on everything he said, this is now what you're to be, who you're to be, what goal you're trying to reach. You are to be perfect as God is perfect. Perfect is the right translation of this Greek word teleos. That word can also sometimes refer to being mature or complete, but but since God is the point of reference here, it, it has to mean perfect. And God is, is not just mature, he's perfect. And we're called to be like God, which is to be perfect. Also, some suggest verse 48 is merely the conclusion of verses 43 through 47. But I really think it's better to understand verse 48 as a concluding thought for the whole section. Back to verse 20. I mentioned last week that there are some verbal bookends in the text. Now, back in verse 20, this whole section started with this teaching that your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees if you want to enter the kingdom. That verb for surpass is parasuo in Greek, means abounding, overflowing. But Jesus comes back and uses the same word in adjective form in verse 47. The thing indicating that everything in between is meant to give us a clear picture of the surpassing far exceeding righteousness required to enter his kingdom. And now in verse 48, after that, with this transition, therefore, he's just going to come out and say it and just take you all the way. Just how surpassing must your righteousness be? Well, like all the way, you are to be perfect as God is perfect. Verse 48 is the summary statement of what God expects of you. This is made evident by the fact that the way Jesus phrases this is so closely parallel to the way the Old Testament phrases the summary statement of what God expects of you. Listen to this. You know that Jesus has been correcting the the scribal misinterpretation of the law throughout. But a big picture of the Old Testament law that they got so wrong is known as the holiness code. Holiness code comes from Leviticus 17 through 26, but it's chiefly expressed in Leviticus 19. But it just so happens that Jesus references Leviticus 19 several times throughout this teaching in Matthew 5. We've mentioned this here and there. Back in verse 33, his correction on making vows is a reference to Leviticus 19. In verse 38, his teaching on not seeking personal retribution Find support in Leviticus 19. And then in verse 43, the command to love your neighbor as yourself comes directly from Leviticus 19. 
Already, there have been many parallels between this key chapter, Leviticus 19, and Christ's teaching. So with this in mind, you get to verse 48. If you know this, you find one unmistakable parallel, one more unmistakable parallel between these two teachings. That the way Jesus summarizes God's standard for his people, it's extremely similar to the way the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, summarizes God's standard for his people. So what is that? Well, listen, it's Leviticus 19 verses 1 and 2. Really verse 2. But it says this. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. You are to be holy, just as your God is holy. Holiness is the theme of Leviticus, and five times we find this command. You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Now, think about this. Keep in mind, God is not telling them to be holy, that they might become God's people. It's a critical point. You can't miss that point. There's never a command to obey the law that you might enter the kingdom. There's never a command to be holy, to make God your father. You have to realize God had already redeemed them from Egypt, speaking corporately of Israel. He already set his unconditional love on them. He already chose them to be his people. Therefore, because of that, now he wants them to to what? To be like him, to, to be like their father, to be holy as he is holy. Let's do another version of it. It's Leviticus 20, verse 26. God tells him again, Thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy. And he says, I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. And God already did that. They're not trying to earn that. He, he already did that. He has already consecrated them to himself as his people. And now he calls them to pursue holiness precisely because they belong to God. He's already made them his people. With this in mind, then, the call for Israel to be holy, like, how holy are we talking about? What is God's standard? Well, the answer is perfectly holy. Could it be any other way for a perfectly holy God? Is this any different than Christ saying you are to be perfect as God is perfect? James 2.10 says, if anyone keeps the whole law and stumbles in just one point, he's become guilty of it all. The standard is not 99%. It's perfection. Perfect holiness is what God demands of his people. Jesus, he's saying the same thing at the end of chapter 5. He's just clarifying the implications. To be holy as God is holy, it means to be perfect as God is perfect. A little holiness won't do. God demands perfect holiness, perfect righteousness in all the ways we learned in chapter 5, in in anger, in purity, in faithfulness, in vows, in vengeance, in love. You are to be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. But also notice, the way Jesus phrases this is just like the Old Testament, meaning he doesn't say you are to be perfect to make God your heavenly Father. He doesn't say you are to be perfect in order to enter the kingdom. That's never how it works. Catch the same nuance. You are to be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. And so what is he already assuming? 
that God is your heavenly father, that you have already been adopted into his family, that, that you already belong to him. And so therefore, because of that, this is how you are to live. And I mentioned last week how this verse, Matthew 5:48, it perfectly captures the possibility and the impossibility of being perfect, of Christ's righteous standard. And let me just clarify now what that's all about. There's a, a dual sense to Christ's teaching, or, or at least a dual effect it will have based on you, where you're at. In one sense, it's impossible, right? Verse 48 is impossible. Verse 20 is impossible. Everything in between is impossible. No one can live like this perfectly, just like no one could keep the Old Testament law perfectly. In this sense, Jesus is confronting all the cultural Jews in the crowd. And that would just as easily confront the cultural Christians today. I mean, look, to all those who, they don't really know the Lord, they're just Christians in name only. Christianity to them, it's, it's already kind of a drag, but they stick around because they're obligated. But, I mean, after everything Jesus just said in Matthew 5, for those people, Christianity becomes an unbearable burden. I mean, just when you thought, you're maybe doing a good job. You're kind of a good person. Jesus clarifies that, oh, actually, the bar of acceptance is way up in the heavens. It's, you know, just being perfect like God. Think about how crushing that is, that you're not even close. Again, that should lead to despair. No one is meant to approach the Sermon on the Mount and think in their own strength, like, oh, I can do that. I can live like this. You know, challenge accepted. And to satisfy the demands of God's law on your own, it's like trying to bench press a tank. And Jesus is up there just throwing more weight on. Like, you never had a chance to begin with. He's just clarifying, you really don't have a chance. But everything Jesus says, again, it comes as a mercy because it's only when you're broken. Only when you're broken by the law, only when you're humbled, that you'll finally just, what? Ask for help. Plead for mercy. What will it take for you to wake up from the delusion that you can be righteous enough to enter the kingdom because you keep some little self-standard of good works? I mean, don't boast in your religious deeds or good works unless you're otherwise perfect. Rather, let the demand for perfection break you down, bring you to your knees. That's the only place you'll see the Savior before you. That only then will you see the one who already died on that cross because you're not perfect to save you. And only then will you actually grasp him with all you have and grasp nothing else but Christ alone. The gate of salvation, it's so extremely narrow. You can barely squeeze through it. And those who come and they're still holding on to their deeds, their accomplishments, their goodness, they can't fit. They'll never make it through. You have to cast all that down. You have to come naked and empty. Just like that beggar who just pleaded to God, have mercy on me, the sinner. But, you know, Jesus said of that tax collector, he went to his home justified. He found salvation. He just found the door. Matthew 5, 48. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is meant to, in part, confront the cultural Jew back then, or the cultural Christian today, that they might be humbled and broken by the demand for perfect righteousness. It comes from the Lord. But this is the greatest mercy because only then can their eyes be opened to the free offer of salvation, which comes as a gift 
The, the righteousness you need to be accepted by the Lord, it's right there. You can just have it all for free by grace through faith in this Savior. Do you want to see a, a depiction of a cultural Jew who came to this realization? Now, easily, the best representation, living representation of everything we're talking about here comes from the testimony of the Apostle Paul himself. Now, though being extremely righteous as a Pharisee, he was thoroughly lost. But in Philippians chapter 3, you can turn there if you like, he recalls how he used to boast in himself, his efforts. I mean, when it comes to this Jewish culture, he was number one. And listen to his boast, Philippians 3, 5 and 6. Philippians 3, 5. He boasts how in the past he says he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. Of course, this is the same phony self-righteousness all the Pharisees uh, subscribe to, but Paul was at the top of the game of, of earning righteousness before God, thinking you could be good enough. But once his eyes were open, once the Lord humbled him on the Damascus road, once he came to the end of himself and saw his own sinfulness, even after all that law keeping, not even an ounce closer to the kingdom. But God finally opened his eyes. What did he see? Well, verse seven, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, and he's talking about all of his badges of honor, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. Verse nine, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith, in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I mean, how clear is that? You want acceptance from God? You want perfect righteousness? You want entrance into the kingdom? You can have it. There's just only one way. It's not by keeping the law or trying to be perfect or doing religious things. It comes as a gift of his grace in which you receive by a true faith in the Savior alone. Our best effort is still rubbish. Only Christ's work on the cross and rising from the dead saves. You know, back to Matthew 5, did you realize, if you've been with us, you should have, that Jesus himself shows us this way into the kingdom in kernel form in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Beatitudes, the beginning of Matthew 5, the, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. These Beatitudes form the gateway into this message in more ways than one. It's only after you pass through these does this message even apply to you. But the opening Beatitudes tell us, like I said, in kernel form, what it takes to enter the kingdom. Let me jog your memory. Verse 3, who's the blessed one? It starts with being poor in spirit. This is not the financially poor. This is the spiritually poor. Salvation begins with the recognition of one's own spiritual bankruptcy before God. Like Paul said, everything you were trusting in is, is rubbish. 
You hit spiritual rock bottom. That leads you to verse four, mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. This is not talking about grief over a lost loved one. This is mourning over your sin. This is the godly sorrow that accompanies true repentance. You see your sin. You grieve over it. You turn from it. This is the heart of one broken by their sin. That leads you to verse five. Blessed are the meek. This is where all boasting is gone. You certainly no longer boast in yourself. You've been humbled. Like a wild stallion that's been tamed. You've been made to submit to Christ as Lord. And you're going to go your own way no longer. Just give me his way. And so verse uh, 6, you come to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Casting off self-righteousness, you seek true righteousness. It's found in him alone. So you seek after him now by faith. You hunger for the bread of life. You thirst for the living water. And seeking him, you'll find him. This we learned many months ago is the picture of salvation. This is the picture of those to whom belongs the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3. To these belong the kingdom of heaven. And like I said earlier, this might be a message some of you need to hear and, and take to heart. There's a chance. There might be some cultural Christians among us this morning. How prevalent it is in American Christianity. Examine yourself. Does this sound like you? That Christianity to you is, is not joyful. There's very little joy in your faith. You're more driven by duty, by obligation. You go to church, you feel you kind of have to, it's expected of you. I mean, there'd be too many social repercussions from your friends and family if you just totally dropped out. But you know, honestly, you don't really want to go. You're very excited when an excuse comes up because you'd rather be elsewhere. It's just, this isn't your scene. And things don't make much sense to you anyway. I mean, you try every now and pick up your Bible, start reading, but you don't get far. You don't get much from it. It doesn't really make sense. It feels more like a chore you're supposed to do. And then, I mean, prayer. What is prayer? It feels like you're just talking to a wall. You gave that up a long time ago. It's not like you dislike Christians. You find allies among Christians against the political left, but you appreciate their morality. You're not a bad person. You try and love your neighbor and all that stuff. But, but every now and then you hear these calls of radical discipleship and it makes you squirm a little bit. It makes you uneasy because in your heart of hearts, you know that, that that's not you. And listen, if this is you, if this describes your Christian experience, something is very wrong. I'm not going to tell you that you're not saved, but the fact that the Lord Jesus himself says there will be hordes of people just like this turned away from the kingdom should trouble you. And so what should you do? You should do this. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test. We're commanded to regularly, all of us, test ourselves, examine ourselves. Seek godly counsel. Go to your shepherds who care for your souls, who will deal with you tenderly, point you to the true gospel. Above all, cry out to the Lord to change you, to make your faith in him real. Because the Christian life, it's not meant to be this huge burden driven by obligation. It's meant to be the greatest blessing driven by joy, the joy of salvation. 
Now, I know there are many present where that describes you, right? You have the joy of the Lord. Your faith in Christ is secure. You're clinging to him alone, not yourself. And amen for that. But still, maybe when you hear Christ's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you hear this call to be perfect, it, it troubles you. Because you know all too well, you, you're still a sinner. Right? You, you're a great sinner. You struggle with sin. You wrestle with sin. Sometimes, oftentimes, you lose. And here Christ is saying you're supposed to be perfect. What does that say about you? This is where I want to encourage you with the possibility of Christ's kingdom standard. You're not meant to be crushed by this teaching, but edified, but lifted up, but encouraged, but exhorted. Because it's possible. We've dwelt long on the impossibility of everything he says from the perspective of a cultural Christian. But now from the perspective of a true disciple, a biblical Christian, everything he says is possible. And it's meant for your instruction and edification. You have to recall that he's preaching this sermon foremost to his disciples. Those who have already passed through the Beatitudes. They've been made right by faith. God is their father. And so now you have a genuine call. Just, you're just being told to be like your God. Be like Christ who saved you. Be conformed to his image. And now being equipped by his spirit, you can. Right? Precisely because you have been made sons and daughters of God. You can actually put off anger and lust like we learned about. You can grow in being faithful and true. You can love your neighbors yourself. You can even love your enemies in the way the Lord did. You, you can follow him. Will you arrive at this perfection in practice in this life? No, for we, we still carry the fallen flesh until we're glorified. Sinful desires remain, but the Lord is giving you God's good standard to guide you and to bless you. This is for your own blessing. Everything he says here, he wants you to live like this. This is what it means to be blessed. This is for God's glory. This is for your good. This is for the world's impact. As he'll teach later in Matthew 7, being made good trees, now you're to bear good fruit. And you will. As you abide in Christ, you will bear the fruit of righteousness in your life. Will you stumble? Will you fall short? You will. But this is why in Matthew 6, he's going to instruct us to pray how. Matthew 6, 12, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have indebted against us. He stands ready to forgive and restore. But you must excel still more. You must press on. You must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's the end of Matthew 6. You must not give up, go back, or coast in your Christian life, but diligently pursue the upward call of being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And so are you, does that describe your Christian experience? I want you to listen to the rest of Philippians three. This is Paul after conversion, just saying how he was justified by faith, not by his own boasting, but became righteous, perfect in Christ alone. But then he goes on to say this now talking about his Christian experience. Philippians 3.12, he says, speaking of perfection, of glorification, he says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that is what the Christian life is all about. It's not a rat race. It's not a burden. It's not a soul-crushing grind to earn God's favor. It's not driven by cultural duty and obligation. It's the greatest blessing and privilege of the upward call, where the goal and the prize are the same thing. It's, it's Christ himself. The Lord Jesus will finish the good work he began in you, Philippians 1.6, on the last day. He'll make us fully perfect in practice, fully like Christ. But now it's only to God's glory and our own blessing that, that we pursue the perfection Christ teaches, not as proud legalists, but as just humble, broken sinners, justified by faith, made joyful in salvation, transformed by grace. I pray this is you. Now give me a group of these people. Give me a church of biblical Christians. Because then you'll have a joy-filled body. You'll have a worshiping, uh, worshiping body. You'll have a forgiving body. You'll have a sanctified body. You'll have a, a witnessing body. And this is still the witness our watching world needs. That is a witness that can still turn the world upside down for good, for real. Our world needs this witness and it's not too late. Let us show them biblical Christianity and the perfect righteousness the Lord has given to us lived out. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we we praise you for your word this morning and how it instructs us and confronts us at the same time. We thank you, you're the the good shepherd, the good doctor, that your word cuts us, not to kill, but to heal. Your word truly is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, yet you wield it not as a sword to destroy, but as a surgeon's scalpel to to cut us open, to lay bare our hearts, our souls, our thoughts and intentions, and reveal who we are. That is your great mercy through your word, and we thank you for it. This morning, we've heard a lot about what you expect of your people, yet how we, we fall infinitely short. We can't be righteous. We're fallen. There might be some here who have bought into the shred that just going along with the motions, being a Christian, going to church is what it takes. If any are convicted of these things, Lord, open their hearts this morning. Sovereignly work to draw them to yourself, to humble them. That's where mercy is found. That's where grace is found. Restoration, forgiveness. There's no shame in that. There's only joy. There's shame in, in clinging to your sin and playing the game. I pray you humble them and draw them to yourself that today can be the day of their genuine salvation. And for the rest who have had that day, may they just be reminded of what is true, what they know to be true, and encouraged by what the Lord teaches us. We've been made perfect by his perfect work. We've already received the gift of life and grace, and that should compel us to worship every single day and compel us to live out the holiness he's given to us. We've not achieved it yet. We've not arrived yet. But we're going to press on. So motivate us not to coast or to drag or to grow weary. But press on in our faith to live out the standard he's given to us. It's only to your glory, to our blessing, and to the impact of the world that so desperately needs it. So work in your people. Make us perfect as you are perfect. Christ's name we pray. Amen.